You are listening to the preaching ministry of Christ Church San Antonio. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.christchurchsa.com. Thank you for listening. Psalm 37, 1 through 11, and 34 through 40. Fret not yourself because of evil evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you um, to inherit the land. You will look on the wicked, you who look on the wicked when the wicked are cut off. I have seen the wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ashley. Let's pray. God, we ask now that the meditation of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight today. We pray that no matter where we find ourselves this morning, no matter what kind of week we've had, no matter if we feel depressed, if we feel happy, if we feel confused, if we feel afraid, that this morning you would come and dwell among us, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would help us to believe truly believe the way that you have ordered the world is the best way and that you are in charge and that you are good. Help us to truly believe that you are for us, that you have not left us or abandoned us when we find ourselves walking in the valley of the shadow of death. God, we love you and we ask that you would reveal yourself to us this morning in new ways and in clear ways and in true ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the best bands in the world that I talk about pretty regularly in sermons is U2. U2 has a song, one of their better songs, I think, called In a Little While. And the best line from that song is when Bono sings. I'm just going to say it. Does that sound okay? I'm not going to sing it. Bono says, uh, in a little while, this hurt will hurt no more. In a little while, this hurt will hurt no more. Now, he's written a love song. That's a love song. But I think that that particular phrase has even a deeper meaning. One of the main things that we hear from God, if you're familiar with the scriptures, or if you begin to read the Bible, maybe for the first time in a long time, and you read the wisdom literature in particular, the Psalms in particular, where we're stu- what we're studying this summer, one of the main things you'll hear about from God is his call for his people to wait, to wait, to wait for the hurt to end, 
when God comes and makes everything new again. God again and again asks his people that they will believe and hope in his promises to remedy all the wrongs in this world. In just a little while, he says, even here in this psalm in verse 10, in just a little while, I'm going to make everything right again. And so Psalm 37 helps us orient our minds around that truth. Verse seven, in a sense, sums up the whole idea of the psalm. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Because in a little while, he's going to make everything right again. So as we read through that, one of the questions that it would be appropriate for you to ask yourself right now, this morning, is do you believe that? Do you believe that one day, as Bono says, your hurts will hurt no more? If you can get your hearts and your minds soaked in that truth that God will one day make everything right again, it really will make a radical difference in your life now. When you can trust God with your life, you can experience, experience the flourishing that he promises us. That's what this psalm is about. We're in the middle of this series called the Summer of Songs. And uh, this psalm is like all of the psalms in that it displays for us the full array of human emotion before the face of God. And so the Psalms are worth our careful consideration. We just read parts of this Psalm, but Psalm 37 is actually an acrostic poem in Hebrew. The first two verses there, verses one and two, and then verses three and four, those verses are little couplets. And each verse, each couplet begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, working its way through the alphabet consecutively. And so this psalm is very intentionally structured. It's used as a, a poetic device. There's two other psalms in the Psalter that do this as well, by the way. It's used as a poetic device to make the main point again and again and again. So if you read through the psalm, or even as you heard Ashley read a portion of the psalm, you'll see the same idea being repeated over and over. And the reason is because that's intentionally the way David structured this song when he wrote it. So what is that main idea? Well, here it is. Let me try and summarize Psalm 37 for you like this today. God sees all the pain of the righteous and all the evil of the wicked so we can trust him with our lives. That's the main point. That's what I want you to take away this morning. And so what I want to do is break that sentence down into three parts, and that'll be our outline for the day. God sees the pain of the righteous. God sees the evil of the wicked. And so we can trust him. Okay? So first, the psalm teaches us that God sees all the pain of the righteous. But before we really dive into that, it's worth taking a second to think about this idea that the psalmist lays out for us of the righteous versus the wicked. There are two types of people in this psalm. And to understand what the psalms in general and Psalm 37 in particular mean, we need to think about what the Bible means when it talks about the righteous and the wicked. That's the major contrast in these verses. So when the poetic books of the Bible speak about the righteous, it doesn't mean people who are perfect or sinless. The righteous, rather, are, are those who are seeking to follow God to live a life of repentance and faith, to keep the greatest commandments, to love God and to love their neighbor as themselves. The righteous are Christ's followers. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, if you've placed your faith in him, if you call yourself a Christian, you would fall into that category, the category of the righteous. So those are the ones who are seeking to follow God faithfully. And when they fail, they repent and believe the gospel again. And importantly, 
Importantly, they're also those who, because that's the life they're trying to live, they suffer. They undergo pain. That's the righteous when you read about them in the religious literature of the Old Testament. The wicked, on the other hand, the wicked are those who ignore or openly violate God's good law. They have no love for God. They have no love for their neighbor. And importantly, the wicked in the Psalms are those who oppress and persecute and belittle the righteous. The bottom line, friends, is that this has always been and will always be the status of God's people, of the church until Jesus returns. I mean, Jesus himself said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you, my followers, as well. So when you see those phrases in the Old Testament, the righteous and the wicked, that's what it means, okay? That's the contrast being drawn out by David in this psalm. So given those definitions, one of the truths that this song develops is that the righteous, those who are seeking to live a life, a life of love for God and love for neighbor, they will have hardship and pain and suffering and difficulty in life. Just look at a couple of the verses. Verse 12 The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. Verse 14, the poor and needy are hit with the bows of the wicked. They are slain. Those whose way is upright are slain. Verse verse 16, the righteous has little, but better is the little that the righteous has in the abundance of the wicked. Verse 32, the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. Verse 39, the righteous are those who need salvation. They need the Lord to be their stronghold because they often find themselves in times of trouble. That's a repeated refrain in this song. Those who are seeking to live a life of holiness, those who are seeking to follow God, those who want to love God and love neighbor often have hardship. They often have pain. They often have suffering. But, but, In the middle of all of that, God is with them. God, you see, knows. God understands. God sympathizes with. God sees the pains of the righteous and is with them in it. Can I tell you something really important? If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to understand that when you experience pain or hardship or heartache or suffering, that is not a sign that God has left you. It's not a sign that God has forgotten about you. It's not a sign that God is far away. No, the Bible again and again and again and again teaches us that God is actually with us in a more profound way in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our suffering. And he's actually using our hardships as opportunities for us to grow in our trust of him in the middle of it all. That's what David says at the very end. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. You know more that God is your stronghold when you find yourself in the time of trouble. I'm convinced that that's one of the most important things that meditating on the Psalms and studying the Psalms will do for our hearts. This part of the Bible reminds us that God has not left us in the pain. God has not left you in your struggle. In fact, God is using your pain. 
God is using your struggle for your ultimate good, even though we can't understand how and shouldn't even really try to pretend that we'll ever be able to fully understand how. I'm reminded, of course, of what C.S. Lewis famously says in his book, The Problem of Pain. He writes, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. What might God be trying to show you in your pain presently? God sees all of the pain of the righteous and promises to be with them and to eventually restore them. That's the first idea. The second idea is that God sees all the evil of the wicked and will judge them righteously. So along with the righteous, the wicked are spoken of repeatedly in these verses. And David, the author, tells us that just like God, just as he sees the pain of the righteous and will be with them in it, so also God sees all the evil of the wicked and will judge them for it. Maybe here's a way to think about it. What is it that we are waiting for as followers of Jesus? What is it we're hoping in as Christians? What do we hope will come in a little while to go back to that U2 song? Well, there's really two things, and this psalm makes both clear. We are waiting for both our deliverance from the pain that evil causes and God's judgment of the evil that causes pain. Look at how often the idea of God's judgment of evil and the wicked is repeated in these verses. Verse 9 and 10 Refrain from, or excuse me, the evildoers shall be cut off, verse 9, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 10, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Verse 12, the wicked plots against the righteous, gnashes his teeth, but verse 13, the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Verse 17, the arms of the wicked shall be broken but the Lord upholds the righteous. Verse 20, the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Verse 35, I've seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. In other words, right now they seem to thrive. They seem to do well. They seem to flourish while we're the ones that are suffering from the perspective of the righteous. But God says, but he passed away. He was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Verse 38, the future of the wicked shall be cut off. Listen, we need to grapple. We need to grapple with this. It's probably not surprising to any of you that this is a really underemphasized biblical thread in our world today. Part of God's coming to make all things new, to make all things right and good again, necessarily involves him in judging the wickedness and the evil and the sin of this world. It necessarily involves him destroying in judgment those who oppress and abuse and mock the righteous. That's essential biblical teaching. If you want to understand what the Bible's about in the fullness of its grand story, you can't just omit that part. The bottom line is if Jesus, when he comes again, is going to right every wrong, if he's going to perfectly remake this world, then he must come in part as a judge. You know, even the most famous of our, you know, Christmassy, feel-good Bible verses contain this theme. Let me just give you one example. Very famous Christmas verse, Isaiah 9. 
Here's what it says. You're going to recognize this. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now listen to this. He, that's Jesus, will establish this government and peace with justice and righteousness. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now Psalm 37 is in part echoing that truth. One thing we're waiting for is not just for our pain to end, but for the dramatic reversal of God's justice. As David puts it, the righteous, verse 10, will inherit the earth. And the wicked, who seem to prosper now, will be cast down. Look at verse 2. There David says that they, the wrongdoers, will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. Now that is a metaphor that we can understand in July in San Antonio, right? I mean, I, when I've mowed my lawn this summer, I'll mow and, you know, there's leftover grass on top of the grass that I've just cut, just sort of laying there. And it doesn't take long for that grass to turn brown, like, you know, four hours or so. And a wind comes and blows it away. And that's the exact image that this psalm is painting for how God will deal with the evil and the wrong of this world. You know, I thought of that this week as I read about probably the story that some of you have also read about in in our own city this week. You probably heard about the semi-truck that was parked in a Walmart parking lot on the south side of San Antonio. And eventually the uh, manager of the Walmart called the police because the truck had been there for some time and they opened up the back of the truck and inside the truck was 35 or 40 immigrants coming up I-35 from Mexico, eight of whom were dead including little children. They had died of heat exhaustion. People had fled away. The driver of the truck had fled away and left them there. It's a terrible story. It's a tragic story that we often often isolate ourselves from in our suburban enclaves and forget that this sort of stuff happens every day, even in our own cities. And when we hear news like that, part of what we should think is one day God is going to make that right. You know that? God sees that. God cares about that. That hurts the heart of God. It causes him to be righteously angry. And he will vindicate himself and those who are oppressed. That's part of what this psalm is getting at. We wait. We wait for the pain in the lives of the righteous to be resolved and for the wickedness and evil and hardness of this world to be done away with. Now, we don't You know, I'm more and more convinced that we don't talk about the good justice of God enough in our circles. And and typically when it is spoken of, it's maligned. It's used in, you know, this sort of category. I don't want to have anything to do with the God of justice, with the God of judgment. We might think that. Maybe that's what you think. But you should see that if you're going to be just intellectually honest with the Bible, at the very least, the Bible talks about this all the time. In fact, it doesn't shrink away from God's judgment at all. Rather, it actually rejoices in it. That's part of what this psalm is doing. And part of the reason that that happens in the Bible all the time and that we struggle to comprehend it is because these people, as opposed to most of us, these people had experienced deep and grievous hardship. These people had experienced deep, personal, gross injustice. And the bottom line is that that familiarity with injustice brings to mind this basic premise. In our world, something is terribly wrong and cries out to be made right. 
I, I read this week about uh, an interview with a man named Vince Gilligan. Vince Gilligan is a TV director and producer, and he's most famous for creating and writing a show called Breaking Bad. I'm not saying you should all go watch Breaking Bad, but he wrote Breaking Bad, and there's a lot of helpful things in this interview. He's interviewed, uh, Breaking Bad, by the way, is a show about a man named Walter White, who is a high school chemistry teacher, and he turns into a drug dealer and a remorseless killer and ends up sort of ruining himself and everything around him. And in this interview I read, Gilligan, the creator of that story, was being interviewed by NPR's Fresh Air. And in the middle of the interview, Gilligan says this, Atheism is just as hard to get your mind around as fundamentalist Christianity. And, and the interviewer picked up on that comment and asked Gilligan, who, by the way, is an agnostic, he's an agnostic, he's a lapsed Catholic, for an explanation of that quote. And, and Gilligan requ- replied, quote, I still want to believe that there is more than just us out there. If there is not cosmic justice, what is the meaning of it all? And what he's saying there is that what this world needs is for all that is wrong to be made right. And embedded into the fabric of every human being is an innate sense and longing for that exact thing to happen. And that's what Jesus does at the cross. That's what God will complete at the last day. He will set aright this world of injustice and deception the poor and the weak and the marginalized who are oppressed, who are beaten up, who are wrongfully imprisoned, who are murdered, they will be vindicated. And those who gain wealth through evil means, those who oppress the poor, those who care not for God's law will indeed face God's good and righteous justice. That's what this psalm is about. This psalm says that the righteous will one day be comforted even though they're experiencing pain now and the wicked, they might be thriving now, they might be living luxuriantly now, but one day they will have to answer for their evil and their oppression. And so for the rest of the time, just for the next couple of minutes, I, I want us to talk about the Psalms major application of those two ideas. Here's a way to think about it, okay? If it is true that in a little while, God will rescue the righteous and crush the wicked, How does that affect us? And there's one main way that the psalm tells us, and this is the third idea. Here's the conclusion. Don't fret, but trust. That's what verse 1 says. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Charles Spurgeon says that to fret is to worry, to have the heart burn, to fume, to become vexed. We should use the word vexed more. That's a good word. Um, When you look at the circumstances of the life you are living and you think, okay, I have struggles. I have difficulties. I have pain. Nothing is going right for me. Nothing seems to work out. And then those who hate God, those who aren't even trying to please God, everything seems to be going well for them. They have money. They have fame. They have it easy. They have the big house on the beach. Our tendency Our tendency is to have anxiety, right? Our tendency is to fret. Our tendency is to worry. Our tendency is to be envious. It makes us doubt. When I think about that idea, there's all sorts of ways that plays itself out in our respective lives. But one good friend of mine, a mentor of mine in ministry, for many years, he and his wife 
tried to have children and they struggled with infertility. They eventually, by God's grace, were able to adopt three children, wonderful children. But I remember he even telling me about the pain and the heartache that he and his wife would go through when they were trying to have children and weren't able to. And in one point he would, he would wonder to himself, why is it that God allows people who will abuse their children and abandon their children to have children? But he doesn't allow me and my wife who want to love our children well and care for our children to have babies. I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense. That's a great example, isn't it? Of, of, the inherent injustice that we all sometimes feel, particularly when things aren't going well for us. We want to fret. We want to worry. Our anxieties fester. We doubt. We envy. We struggle. And what the psalm says, what the psalm says is stop. But it doesn't just say stop, period. It says stop because of all these things that we've been talking about. Instead of fretting, we should trust. Look at the commands there in verses 3 through 7. Trust in the Lord, verse 3. Delight yourself in the Lord, verse 4. Commit your way to the Lord, verse 5. Trust in Him, verse 5. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Do not fret over the one who prospers in His way, verse 8. Refrain from anger. Fret not. Why? Why should we not fret? Why should we not worry? Why should we commit ourselves to the Lord? Because, verse 6, He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as noonday. Verse 10, in just a little while the wicked will be no more. The meek will inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Here's the thing. In every instance in your life in which you fret, in which you worry, in which you doubt, in which you are envious of the wicked. In every single instance, you have an option to believe one of two things. You can believe in that moment, first, either I don't believe God and I don't think he knows what he's doing. <laughs> if I were in charge of this world, I would not be going through this right now. I'm a better CEO of the universe than God would be. That's step A. You can take that path and what that path will lead you to is an increase of fret, an increase of worry, an increase of envy. Or you can take path B. You can say, even though my circumstances are telling me that my life stinks, that nothing is going right, that my colleagues at work who are willing to cut corners are going to get the promotion that I really deserve, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to believe that he is for me and that he's actually going to use this hardship to make me in the end more like the person he created me to be, more like Jesus himself. I believe that he loves justice. I believe he will uphold me. I believe I will inherit the land. Listen, every day, every one of you are faced with innumerable opportunities to believe one or the other of those things. Do you see then? How what is going on in your heart and in your head affects the way you are living. It affects the way you're interacting with other people. If you're believing that the wicked have it all and that you have nothing and that God has forgotten you or doesn't care, you will worry. Trust me, I know I, I struggle with this a lot. But if you believe that what God has told you here is true, you can really have now peace. You can really have now a taste of the delight that we will forever share in our future lives. Will you ask yourself right now, what is worrying you? Some of you are like, come on, Pastor. 
just choose one of 30, okay? What's worrying you the most? What are you fretting about? What makes you angry or frustrated or discouraged? Think about that right now. The Spirit of God is here, and He's asking you through this verse, through this psalm, to consider those things in your life. What is it for you? Maybe, why does no one appreciate my work? I spent some time with one of my best friends who lives in New York this past month, and he is working at this very, uh, you know, kind of big deal hedge fund sort of place where there's a ton of pressure, and he had spent all week, the week I was there, working on this big project that he was going to deliver to his CEO and the board in a presentation. And they had asked him to give, you know, this full-fledged report about whatever company's doing whatever. And he got up, and in the middle of his second sentence, his boss cut him off, and he goes, Matt, why don't you just skip all this? No one really cares. Just give me the bottom line. A week's worth of effort, at least. It makes sense for him to think, why does no one appreciate me, man? I mean, you can't pay. There's not enough money in the world that will make me want to do that again. Maybe, maybe you're not working at a hedge fund in Manhattan. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, and you don't see anyone, the vast majority of your day, that is taller than your knees. And you have an unending supply of laundry. You have an unending supply of dishes. You feel frustrated. You're lacking in sleep. You remember the, the bygone era where you used to, you know, put on makeup and go on a date. Those things just don't happen anymore. And you think, does anybody see me here? Does anybody notice my work? God, hello, Bueller, anybody out there? Right? Maybe for you, it's What's causing you worry is, why am I not in a relationship? If God loves me, if God made marriage, if God doesn't want man to be alone, then why am I alone? I want to meet a, a godly man or a, a godly woman. I want to get married. I want to commit my life to someone. I want to have emotional and relational and physical intimacy. I, I long for that. God, why aren't you giving me that? That's going to make you worry. It's going to make you fret. Maybe for you, it's, you know, why do we keep getting smashed with a new financial crisis every time we finally get past the previous one? Anybody ever experienced that, right? You get the roof repaired, and the next day the AC goes out in June in San Antonio, right? And you scrape together enough money to buy a new AC, and the car dies. And then you lease a new car, and then a kid breaks his leg, falling off the trampoline, and the insurance only covers half of the huge cost. Come on, God. I mean, seriously, when this stuff happens, when it builds up, we all tend in ourselves to not trust, but to worry, to try to avoid bad things, to get bitter that we have it worse than others, to envy. We tend towards exactly what this psalm is warning us against. So friends, listen, this morning, what you need to hear and what I need to hear is that the gospel has the power to heal our worry and to assuage our fears. We need the truth of Psalm 37. You might say, I want to trust, but I can't get through the fretting. I can't get through the worry. And let me tell you, the Spirit of God is reaching in right now through the fog of fretting and through the weariness of worry and pointing you back to see what God has done for you. Think about it. Jesus's work for us proves that everything that God says here is true and dependable. Listen, we know 
We know that God will give us the desires of our heart because he was willing to rip out his own heart in giving up Jesus. We know that God will give us the fullness of our inheritance like this song sings about because Jesus was willing to give up the fullness of his inheritance for us. We know that God will uphold our hand when we fall because God in his love didn't hold up Jesus's hand, but let him fall at the cross into death to reconcile the world to himself. We know that God will never cut us off, that he will preserve us because he cut off Jesus to take away the sin of this rebellious world. We know that God will not abandon us in the dark because God was willing for a time to leave his son in the dark for you. The Spirit is telling you through this psalm that you can trust God. You can trust God with your lives. You can lay down your worry. You can stop fretting because Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. God knows the pains of the righteous. He knows the evil of the wicked. And he's already given us a down payment in Jesus' death and resurrection that one day he is going to come and make it all right again. That's the only way to heal worry. Immersing yourself in that is the only way to get past fretting. You know, I want to conclude with this thought. Some of us just want... (laughs) This struck me this week. This is true of me. Some of us just want the answers. You know, um, we don't think trust will work as a balm for our worry. We want to know the reasons why things are happening to us that we don't like or don't understand. Right? Think about it this way. If God actually did provide you with an explanation for all the reasons he allows things to happen as they do, it would be way too much for our human finite brains. Think of little children and the relationships that they have with their parents, with their mom or their dad. Um, Three-year-olds cannot understand most of why their parents allow and disallow what they do. But though they aren't capable of understanding their parents' reasons, they are capable of knowing that their parents love them. And therefore, they're capable of trusting them and living securely. That is what they really need. Now, the difference between God and human beings is infinitely greater than the difference between a three-year-old child and a 30-year-old parent. And so we should not expect to be able to grasp all of God's purposes. But through the gospel, through the cross of Jesus, we can know his love. And that's what we need the most. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your love. You're kind and faithful. And throughout the Bible, but in particular today, today, as we think about this psalm, Psalm 37, we see that you remind us here that you see everything that happens in this world. You know that bad things happen to those who are seeking to do good. And you know that those who care nothing for doing good seem to thrive. And you know that that confuses us and causes us all sorts of grief and worry and doubt. And so you've put this psalm in the Bible just to help us with those sorts of thoughts. So will you help us to believe that you have not left us, that you see what's happening in the world, and that because that's true, we can stop worrying and fretting. We can stop worrying that you're going to leave us because Jesus proves that you'll never do that. 
And God, as we go back, it's easy for us to say, yeah, I want to believe that right now, but on Monday it's harder. So God, help us to fight against worry, to fight against fretting, to fight against envy through faith in the gospel. And we need your spirit if we're going to do that, God. So will you change our lives in that way? We ask it humbly in faith because we can't do it on our own. We've tried all the things we can try and all we end up doing is worrying more. So spirit, come and do that work among us. Thank you that you care for us so deeply that you would give us your only son. And so we pray for you to work on our hearts in these ways. In Jesus' name, amen.